If you would join with me in turning to the scriptures from Exodus chapter 4, as we will pick up in the middle of a holy conversation. As God has met Moses at the burning bush, has instructed him to take off his sandals for the ground on which he stands as holy, God then proceeds to give him his understanding of his call and of his ministry for which for these 80 years God has prepared him. We are in the middle of this conversation as we begin now at chapter 4 verse 1 and we'll go through verse 9 this morning as we consider Moses' accreditation of God to the calling that he's called him to. Now hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, I am has not appeared to you. So I am said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. Then I am, said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and he caught it and it came a rod in his hand. And they may believe that I am, God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Furthermore, I am, said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again, and he drew it out of his bosom, and behold, it was restored like the other flesh. Then it will be, if they do not believe you or heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, then you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land, and the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Thus ends the reading of the word of God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, the one who revealed yourself to Moses as the I am that I am, the one that we acknowledge as Yahweh, who is the God and the only true God of heaven and of earth, the creator of it all, who has given your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins and to restore to us that which was, was fallen and broken. And how thankful we are that you restored us to yourself. Exalted us above all the things that you have created here, that we are co-reigning together with our Lord Jesus as kings and priests. How thankful we are for the Spirit of God which seals us into the day of our redemption. We're thankful that He is present with us this day, opening up the Scripture into our ears and to our hearts. And we ask that you would bring forth the fruit for which you desire in our lives as a congregation, in our lives individually. We pray that you would sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. 
that you would have our hearts to be soft and our attention to be upon the Word of God. In faith, may we now hear what you have for us to hear. And I pray that you would be a guard upon my lips and a watch upon my tongue, and that which I speak would be that which you decree, that which you would be pleased with, that which is your message to us this day. That Christ would be exalted, and those words of which are just of the of the man, we pray, would be like smoke blown away and chaff like the wind would be driven far so we would remember it no more. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. For 40 years, now Moses has spent time in the backside of the wilderness of Midian, shepherding sheep, which was a stark contrast to the first 40 years of his life where he spent growing up in Pharaoh's palace in the opulent culture of Egypt. And you might remember that the Egyptians loathed shepherds, and such a contrast as this of his second 40 years of his life with his first 40 years of life to match the very contrast that God is about to call him to, to bring a people that is called by God's name to be holy out from among the Egyptians and out from the world to be his holy nation and a kingdom of priests. God saw fit to use this very contrasting lifestyle to shape Moses into the meekness of what would become of him and what now is evident as God begins to converse with him at the burning bush. You might remember that our current passage is right in the middle of this conversation that God is having with Moses. Moses is now ready to be sent back to Egypt to lead God's people out of bondage but Moses now is not so sure about his assignment. As he was confident in his flesh 40 years earlier, which drove him out of Egypt, he's now not confident at all. From this point forward, Moses would have to rely 100% on God's strength and not his own to accomplish that which God has sent him forth to do. And that will not be easy. And neither is it easy for you and neither is it easy for me to rely 100% on God's strength to do that which he has called us to do, which we cannot do in our flesh. And we'll have to learn many times over and over that this calling of God upon our lives is not natural. This kind of of dependence upon God requires our trust, our constant faith, our daily denying of ourselves and taking up our cross to follow Jesus. And we have to trust now in the invisible I am. And that kind of trust and dependence is spiritually trained by the Spirit of God in the experiences of life. 
As God speaks to Moses in the burning bush, he informs Moses that he's sending him back to Egypt to lead the Hebrew people out of their bondage. Their destiny will be a promised land that God had gone before and prepared for them. And for the last 400 years, that's what God had been doing. He'd been preparing the land that he had told Abraham, Isaac, and Moses that his people would inherit. But Moses' first response to God's calling we find back in chapter 311. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out? God graciously answers him in the following verse, in verse 12, when he says, I will certainly be with you, Moses. In which turn, Moses' second response comes in verse 13. Well, when I come to the children of Israel and they ask me who, who sent me to them, well, what shall I say to them? And God says, tell them, I am sent you. And here we're introduced for the first time of the very proper name of God, which the later scripture says that God did not reveal himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob this way, but he has revealed himself to Moses. And this would become known as not only the proper name of God, but the very covenant name of God that he reiterates throughout all of the scriptures that we might know that I am the great eternal I was, I am, and I will be. Am your God. I am the only one. And that is the same God that has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is the same God who speaks with us as he spoke with Moses at the burning bush. That is the same God that has covenanted with us as he had covenanted with our fathers. And the same God that will lead us on to the glory of the promised land. And now we come to Moses' third response, which we pick up in chapter 4, verse 1. But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they will say, I am has not appeared to you. God answers Moses patiently and giving him the answers that he is seeking. And God answers Moses by giving Moses three specific miraculous signs of which we just read. Now these miraculous signs, and we're going to see a lot of miracles began to unfold in the subsequent passages, but miracles, I want to say, are very special and very specific, very narrow works, supernatural works of God that are signs in order to verify both the messenger and the message that the messenger is bringing, that these are verified as coming from God himself. And that is the point of miracles. We do not live in the day of miracles. In fact, very few people have lived in the day of miracles. Now, I do not mean by that that God does not do supernatural works among us as he does that frequently. He does that daily. God works in supernatural ways in our lives and in the world and sometimes those are more evident than others. But God is always at working supernaturally in this world. He heals the sick. He regenerates hearts of hardened sinners. 
He brings forth food and helps in such ways that we cannot but help to know that this was a direct answer to prayer and that God is at work. But this supernatural work that we look at from our perspective is God's ordinary work in this world. Now, faith expects God's supernatural work. In fact, it requires us to expect God's supernatural work. For if we do not believe that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, then we have not faith. And Hebrews 11.6 tells us that we have to believe that God is and that He is going to reward us in supernatural intervening ways that only God can do. So we walk by faith, expecting great things from God in this way, as the Bible has taught us to do. But miracles are a very special and narrow aspect of God's supernatural works. They are very specific signs, not just supernatural works. And those signs always accompany the giving of special revelation to verify that this revelation is from God and the messenger who brings it needs to be heard. The special revelation that we have now finished and completed in our canon of Scripture is what we call the Scriptures. And in the vast span of biblical history, From the time that Moses began to write this down in about 1440 B.C. all the way into the time it was completed in about A.D. 70, for these 2,000-something years, there were only three major periods of time in that biblical history of which miracles were, were evident. They were primary times, not that God didn't intersperse them at other times, but only three major epochs of time within 2,000 years. Each of those periods of time only lasted about 40 years. Okay, are are you with me? God works supernaturally every day. But when we talk about miracles, we're talking about something very narrow and special as a sign, not just supernatural work, and it accompanies special revelation. The first of those 40-year periods begins here with Moses, and we see right here at the burning bush, God is beginning to have this opening, not only a special revelation of which Moses will pin down, but the evidence of it that he will verify this truth is from God. The second period of that 40-year span of period of time was the time of Elijah and Elisha during the historic time of the nation of Israel. And the final and third time of 40-year period of miracles was the time of Christ and the apostles. So the three signs that now Moses is giving to, uh, God is giving to Moses to verify that not only is he the one, but that the truth that Moses bears is God's truth, these were miracles. They were no doubt supernatural, but they had a very special purpose to validate Moses' ministry and what God was doing through him. You remember that the people spurned him 40 years ago. Who made you judge and ruler over us? Well, God had, but Moses wasn't yet ready, and they weren't ready for it, and Moses was trying to accomplish it in the wrong way. So another 40 years of of backside wilderness training was in order for Moses. 
And what we have to recognize here is Moses was typical. Moses himself, though a real man, his position in office would be a very special sign, a symbol, if you will, but one that is a symbol that will be fulfilled in another in the Scriptures. And his symbol was that of a mediator. And that mediation stands between God and God's people. And that mediation will be ultimately fulfilled in the only true mediator, the man Christ Jesus, who is the only mediator between God and man. But we have to learn oftentimes by earthly object lessons before we actually get the point. And that's what's going on here. And so we're going to have miraculous signs once again when that fulfillment of that mediation comes in Christ Jesus. And so we have these parallel ministries of Moses and Jesus. One is the picture, the other is the fulfillment. Both are verified by miraculous signs and the special revelation that would accompany them so that we might know that I am is speaking to us through these men. Now, the principles that we see here unfolding in this passage of the burning bush are true for every minister who is called by God. And who God calls, he equips, and he affirms with external evidences and affirmations to that calling. And that's true for every one of us. That's true for you. And however God has gifted you to serve in His body, He will provide the evidence of that gifting. He will give you opportunity to serve, and He will affirm that as you are integrated into the body, serving Christ with what His place is for you in the body of Christ. Now let's consider three particular aspects to Moses' creditation for his ministry that God was giving him in this particular passage. And that was especially important for those who would bring the question, well, Moses, who sent you? And how do we know that he sent you? Now, those are legitimate questions, and Moses himself had a legitimate reason to ask that. And three signs that now Moses, or God would give to Moses, and we have to remember that God was revealing himself through a lot of symbolism, particularly in this book of Exodus. There's rarely an object or an action in the book of Exodus that does not have some kind of symbolic meaning. And I believe the same is true here. The first sign that God would give to Moses that would show his accreditation for the ministry that he's calling him to, that would verify to the people that this is the one that is leading you out and would be even a sign unto Pharaoh himself, was the sign of the rod. God asked Moses, what is that in your hand? You might remember what Moses had been doing for 40 years. He was a shepherd. And what he had in his hand was a shepherd's rod. And Moses had been shepherding the sheep when he comes to the burning bush, and so it was very natural for him to have this rod in his hand, the rod by which he would use to shepherd uh, the sheep. And the word here for rod is a very generic name for that word rod. It's not the same word as we have for rod or staff in Psalm 23. But nonetheless, it's, it's a shepherding implement of which is used in 
uh, of this same way. But this, this word, I think, is used here of a shepherd. But it's used in juxtaposition in the Scripture associated with a scepter. Now, a scepter was a symbol of sovereignty. And in Psalm 110, this very word for this rod is used when it says, The Lord shall send the rod, and some of your translations had a scepter of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. In Isaiah 14, 5, it also uses this word, The Lord has broken the staff, and that's the word, uh, of the wicked, the scepter of rulers. And so he takes this word of a shepherding staff and he puts it in association with not only the shepherding of sheep that Moses was then currently doing, but he relates it as a scepter in other passages. So we see this connection being made, a symbol of sovereignty. Moses' shepherding rod. Now, Moses' shepherding rod would become later a king's symbol, a king's scepter. Where did God find David, the first king, after his own heart? He finds him tending the sheep. And for a shepherd, the rod was that which he used to protect the sheep. And for a king, it represented his sovereign power and authority over his realm. Now, God would transform this very simple, common implement in Moses' hand, and from this point forward, then this shepherd's rod would be a symbol of God's power and God's authority and God's sovereign rule in Moses' hand. It would be held in Moses' hand. Moses is the mediator, this type of Christ who has been given to him the kingdom and his scepter is a scepter of righteousness. And Moses is now showing that this authority and all of God's sovereignty has now come down and it is showing itself in the presence of God's people that he is leading out of the land of Egypt. And I am, of course that may be a little strange to our hearing, we might use the term Jehovah or the word Yahweh or the more the Lord. But the way he reveals himself in this passage is the way I want to continue to present it. I am would empower the mediator with authority and power to rule. And this transformed rod would be God's accreditation unto Moses for what God was doing. And it would be a sign to God's people that I am truly has sent Moses and that God has called him and that God has empowered him and that God has accredited him to be their deliverer. It was important for them to understand this so that they would actually follow him out of their bondage and into the will of God into the promised land. And we shall see in subsequent scripture that these special offices of the mediator were the offices of prophet, priest, and king, all of which Moses functioned in a special way. 
And God always does three things with these special offices. First of all, in this office, he chooses the individual. It is not up to the man to self-appoint himself into this role, but it is God's selection of this man that appoints him to be in this special office. For instance, in Deuteronomy 17, 15, it speaks of the later king when it says, You shall surely set a king over you whom I am your God chooses. And of the priesthood, he spoke and affirms this even in Hebrews 5, speaking about the Aaronic priesthood back in the Old Covenant. Of the priesthood, it says, And no man takes his honor to himself, but he who is called just as Aaron was. And even of the prophet, we have an example of this in Jeremiah 1.5 when it says, Before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. And before you were born, I sanctified you and I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. I am is the one that chooses for the office. In every case, whether it's prophet, priest, or king, it is God that chooses the man. He is not a self-appointed man. And therefore, what God chooses, he will equip. This is also true of his ministers today. The second thing he does is not only does he choose the man, he also authorizes the man in that office. The individual is accredited by God and given the authority to exercise the office to which he has now been called and anointed. So God chooses the man, he authorizes the man, but third, he empowers the man. God will not leave a man powerless, but he gives the power to accomplish that for which he's called him. The anointing of God was, was a gifting that God had given, and he it comes with the call is also the power to accomplish that for which God has sent so that he will be successful in the calling. This is a grace that accompanies his calling. This is a gifting in the power of the Spirit working in and through the individual. And in the church of Jesus Christ today, he no longer minimizes or limits that power to prophets, priests, and kings, but he has now given his Spirit and the spiritual gifts to all of his people in the church. And that is part of the glory of the new covenant that now the spirit and the power has been given to us all. To function in this glorious manner of priests and kings collected together to have a great amount of influence and power over all of the nations of this earth. Now, God has given each one of us and us as a whole a whole lot more esteem and honor and power than we often understand and consider for ourselves. And that's why we don't receive this with the kind of faith that we should. And we don't use the means of grace to get the power and the strength by which we are to minister with this gift. And, and we just have a low view of ourselves and a low view of the church and the world, but if we would rise up and understand the great power that raised up Christ from the dead has been given to every one of you to serve Christ successfully and the very thing that he has called you and authorized you and equipped you to do 
in his church for his great namesake. And you bear a great privilege. When you're out sharing the gospel with someone on the street and they're not listening to you and you feel like a failure, no, that should not be how you feel because God has to open the door of the heart. You bear the seed, you come and you plant and you water it, but let God bring forth the increase. But that doesn't mean that you're not empowered with the Spirit of God to share that good news powerfully. So whom God chooses, he authorizes. Whom he authorizes, he also empowers. And, and this was true for all of the offices, but this is what was going on right now at the burning bush with Moses. All, all of that. God calls him, he authorizes him, and now he then empowers him. Now God would show him, Moses, and the Hebrew people that it is God who called him to do this task and it is in God's power that Moses is accomplishing the task. So Moses' shepherd's rod would be no ordinary shepherd's rod from here on, as we shall see. It would be transformed into a scepter. Symbolically, but nonetheless, would show God's sovereign power over all of the earth. And as Moses now leaves shepherding to become God's called and authorized and empowered mediator, we're going to see what happens next in this symbol of the rod. God says, take the rod that's in your hand, throw it down. And as Moses threw it down not realizing what was going to happen as soon as it hit the dirt. It turns into a serpent, and Moses fled from it. This was no ordinary rat snake. This was not a black snake. This was something to be feared. And Moses knew it right away by its looks. This is something that was lethal and dangerous. Well, when we think about that symbolism that's going on there, why a serpent of all things? And I think there's a lot, of, a lot of things going on here. Well, the first thing we think of when we hear of a serpent is what? Back to the fall, Genesis 3. And the serpent was more crafty than any other creature. And the devil had entered the serpent in order to deceive the woman, in order to bring mankind down into their, their fallen condition, to curse the whole earth that would happen after that. And here is we have a symbol of the serpent now. We have this serpent on the ground that came out of Moses' rod. And God's curse on the serpent in Genesis 3, when the devil inhabited this serpent, and bring the chaos into the world is now what's lying at Moses' feet. And we will see again and again in Scripture the serpent used as a symbol of God's curse. At the same time, we must remember that when the symbol of God's curse is there, there's also provision of grace to redeem us out of that curse. The very curse that cursed Devil and the, and the serpent is the very grace that was found into us in it in the crushing of the head of the serpent through the seed of the woman. And while God himself is the one who brought the curse to satisfy his own righteousness, because this is all about God, he is also the one that is powerful over it to show Moses that I am 
is the deliverer when he then instructed Moses to pick it up by its tail. If you know anything about dangerous serpents and the kind of serpent I think this is, the last thing you want to do is pick it up by its tail. There's very strong belief, and I think even exegetically implied, that this could very well likely be a cobra. If you know anything about the cobras, cobras are aggressive. And the last place you want to pick up a cobra is by its tail. I can only picture it in my mind's eye, but Moses immediately recognized something that he fled from, but then God says, pick it up by its tail. Uh, The very first time this ever happened, this would not be the last time, put yourself in the situation. (laughs) It's pretty, pretty intepid. And Moses grabs it by the tail in obedience to the word of God that he was instructing him because it's more, it is better to fear God, particularly without your shoes on, on this holy ground with the angel of Yahweh speaking to Moses out of this burning bush where Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look upon God and it's better to fear God and obey him than to think about the cobra at the time. And so he obeyed God. And he picks it up by the tail, and it reverts back to a rod in his hand again. It was a demonstration of God's act and his power of deliverance from the curse and the bondage to sin of which the serpent symbolized. If we were to recall, there was an incident in Numbers 21 of God's curse breaking out on the people again when they began to complain against Moses and the people, or in God. And when when the people started complaining against Moses and God, God sent serpents into their camp to bite them, aggressive serpents, lethal serpents, and many of them died. And they were very fearful of the serpents. But to preserve their lives from that curse and the judgment that God was bringing because of their sins, God instructed Moses to erect a fiery serpent and raise it up on a pole so that when people are bitten, they can turn and look at the fiery serpent and they would not die from the curse of the serpent. It would save them from death. Jesus would later be identified with that bronze serpent that Moses made in the wilderness. And so here was an emblem of the very curse that Jesus would become for us, that God would raise up on the cross, and God's judgment would be passed out upon Jesus for our sins, so that when we are guilty with that, we can look unto Jesus, who is high and lifted up upon the cross, who bore our curse for us, and we will live, and we will not die under God's curse. See, this is a lot of the symbolism that is packed into these passages that God is unfolding for us that later would be identified with Jesus. 
Now, the act of turning to this fiery serpent to look at it was really a symbol of our act of repentance and turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus and turning to look up into Jesus because we walk by faith, not by sight. And that looking was this act of faith and believing God's word that lied behind the symbol. So when Moses then cast his rod down, we're seeing this rod become a serpent this casting down of Satan by the power of God is now the power of God that redeems his people out of that curse as he has graciously brought it upon his people. We live in a world that is full of a curse. We live in a world of which we have made for ourselves. We live in a world by which our own sins become our judgment. We live in a world that has fallen and depraved and crumbling all around us, and that is why they need the power of God in Jesus Christ to save them from their sins. And you have that message. Well, secondly, the serpent was not only a symbol of what we have already come to recognize by this time, but it was also in the very present context in which Moses is going, something of a very prominent symbol in Egypt. The serpent, or particularly so the cobra, and why I believe this was very likely a cobra that was that which was used, was a symbol of Pharaoh and also of Egypt's sovereignty. It was referred to as the Uraeus. The Uraeus was a stylized cobra that was reared up and ready to strike with his fangs exposed and his hood dilated. And you will see the stylized cobra adorning the crown of Pharaoh. Now this Uraeus was a symbol for the goddess Wajit. And Wajit was the protector of, uh, a protector deity. He, she was the, the guardian of the, the sovereign providence and of the realm. She was the daughter of Egypt's sun god, Re. And Wajit's job was to protect Egypt and Pharaoh from evil and the chaos. It's interesting how the world takes the very symbols of the enemy and makes them their own. It's because they have suppressed the truth of God and they now worship the creature rather than the creator and they begin to pervert the very God into idols made like unto the great enemy of whom they truly do serve. Now, this stylized cobra was a part of Pharaoh's head. You'll see it in a lot of Egyptology and some of their arts and their images and the, the golden crowns that you will see depicted of the pharaohs. You'll see this cobra right here, right on the forefront, in a position that is ready to strike or ready to spit its venom, because the cobra is one of those that actually can spit its venom up to six and a half feet. And so there is a symbol of the sovereign ruler connected to the very God of the deity that would protect that ruler and the realm. It was a picture both of the power of the deity to protect 
the sovereign power of that Pharaoh as well as the emblem of Pharaoh's sovereignty and power himself. Now this is where it kind of gets good, right? So, so Wajit's protection is now reinforced in the symbol that Pharaoh now holds. The symbol of both a God of protection and Pharaoh's sovereignty would likely be that which now Moses would cast to the ground, a cobra. Moses had every right to be fearful from that. And so when Moses picked it up by its tail, according to God's instruction, the the deadly cobra would become his rod again, see. The sign of accreditation would show who truly is sovereign, who which is a visible symbol to to Moses and to the Hebrews and to Pharaoh himself that God will do what he said he was going to do and he will be faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph knew this and now time was at hand and God was over all of the powers of Egypt, over all of the land of Egypt, over all the gods in which the Egyptians trusted, and over that Pharaoh who bore the symbol there. And we might remember that even Pharaoh himself would become somewhat of a typical figure of the great enemy of God, Satan himself. And so when this sign would be shown to Pharaoh, which was the first sign when Moses went back and he spoke to the people, the very first sign that he and Aaron would show Pharaoh was when he would cast his rod to the ground and it would become a serpent. And Moses said, hey guys, come in here. And he brings the wise men and, and their magicians in and, and they do the same thing. Now we've got a bunch of cobras running around the floor. But then Moses' cobra goes and eats up all the other ones, and he is the only one that picked it back up by its tail. And while the magicians might have been able to get their rods into serpents, they dared not pick it up by its tail. But they didn't have to because the sovereignty of God is showing his complete dominion over all of the realm of the gods of the, the Exodus and of, of the Egyptians during this time of Exodus. And that's part of, the, that's part of the story is that God was not going to merely simply lead them out. He was going to lead them out with great power to show the very defeat over all of Egypt's trusts, over all of their gods, over their Pharaoh who represents it all, right in the middle of all these pyramids that were there when Moses went. And he's going to show him that I am is over Egypt and over Ray and over Wajit and over Pharaoh. So what was true and symbol or what was showing to be true in symbol became the reality in Christ. And folks, we need to understand that Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is the King of kings. We're not waiting for a time in which he can come back to be that. He is reigning right now at the Father's right hand until all of his enemies are suppressed and put under his feet. And he will rule with a rod of iron. 
And he will rule in the midst of his enemies. And as Psalm 110 says, when he rules in the midst of his enemy, he is doing that very thing right now through his church in the midst of this world. And that is Jesus ruling and reigning with the authority that he has given to us. It is the same kind of analogy as him giving us his rod. Because as we have the power of God to then take his kingdom and express it in a way into this world, we can expect success, not failure. He didn't leave us here to fail. And this power and this authority that God himself, the Father, has given to his Son is what is being demonstrated in this rod when he gives it to Moses. And so many of the signs that we will see that he shows to the Egyptians will be with this rod in his hand. When he lifts up the rod over the waters, when he lifts up the rod over the Red Sea, when he lifts it up again and it comes down crushing, when he lifts it up, he lifts it up and he lifts it up. It is the power of God and Jesus Christ that is being lifted up and therein is the power seen right in the middle of his people against all of their enemies. And this rod, which is part of Moses' accreditation to show that he's the one that's leading them, is the one that would also be used later to remind the people of this very same thing. You might remember when Moses and Aaron's leadership was challenged by Dathan and Abiram, and they led a coup of um, several people of, the, of Israel And God took care of Dathan and Abiram, but he also had to show the rest of all of Israel who had been influenced by that coup that who is the leader. And so he says, I want you to take one person from each of the tribes and bring me one rod from every tribe, including Aaron's rod. By the way, Aaron's rod is the same rod. Moses and Aaron shared the same rod. So they lay it all out there before Uh, the people and before God, and it was Aaron's rod that sprouted the almond buds that showed that it was Moses that was accredited and called and authorized. And so this rod would continue to remind the people that they had to follow God through this mediator. Just like he has to remind us that we have to follow God by following Christ, the true mediator. So this rod would authenticate Moses in all of those three ways. It would allow, it would show that it was God's calling on Moses for this ministry and it was God's choosing for that. And second, it would authenticate Moses with the necessary authority with which to carry out his responsibilities And third, it would also provide Moses with the needed power, equivalent to our gifting today, for Moses to carry out the ministry to which he called him. And God equips him with all of that. There's a lot of symbolism packed in this rod. So as we read about Moses and this rod in the subsequent passages, we have to remember what is being shown here to us and the sovereign rule that God has over all of the nations. I'm not going to spend near as much time on the second two symbols, but let's just look very briefly at them as we think about, well, if they don't hear the first one, what's the second one? He says, all right, Moses, if they don't believe that one, put your hand in your bosom 
and then take it out, and it became leprous. And he says, put it back in, and it became clean. Now, we have to understand a little bit more of leprosy to understand the impact of that, because leprosy is not healed that miraculously. It would have been an evident miracle that this had happened, both in the sign that his hand became leprous that quickly and the sign in which he was healed. Leprous was very visible with sores all over the flesh, and yet it was not a skin disease, but it was a disease of the nervous system. It was a very painful disease whose symptoms first began to emerge on the skin, and it begins to waste away the flesh to the point where some people are so disfigured they become unrecognizable. It's very painful. It's very disfiguring, and the nerve endings can actually be so deadened that people have burned themselves with hot water, not feeling it. So it begins to hurt and painful all the way to the deadening of these things, and it's just showing itself evident all over the body. Extensive damage. Patients can inflict harm to themselves, and, and they can be destructive to themselves, and this is a very contagious disease. And because of this uh, very contagious and dreadfulness of the nature of this disease, uh, it's not only easily identifiable once it's in full orb, but they lepers were also segregated from society and had little interaction with other people because of this dreaded disease. And here we have a picture again of sin and its curse. And it was demonstrated in Moses' own hand. And yet here we see Jesus reaching out to touch and to heal lepers, not afraid to put his hands upon them. Because God desires to heal and to bless everything that's wrong with us. So the hand that touches is the hand that heals. And the hand of God here was, was God showing in Moses' own hand that the curse of the sin was upon him, and yet the hand of God would deliver him. And two actions. And so leprosy has become a symbol of this heinous, destructive, contagious, deplorable, internal disease that we've inherited from Adam, and we are all guilty but it is God's power of his hand that brings the healing. And that's the very point that he was doing in bringing his people out of Exodus or out of Egypt in the Exodus. This too would be a sign to authenticate Moses in his ministry. Now you might remember when Aaron and Miriam began to disparage Moses and began to speak against whom he had married, that God struck Miriam with leprosy, reminding her, no doubt, of this very scene, this very sign that Moses showed years earlier, that Moses was God's leader. And Miriam had to pay the penalty until God healed her from that. The last sign was water to blood. Water was a symbol of life in Egypt. You might remember it had very little rainfall. They depended upon the Nile. And the Nile became that which was protected by their gods because it was so important for life. 
particularly in that delta region which was lush, and the land of Goshen is right up there in that northern part of Egypt that goes out into the sea. And the Nile was that which gave them life. It was the symbol of life for them. And here was the symbol of life that now God would bring forth death And the means of blessing, God would turn into judgment. There's an application there for us that we might all recognize that our greatest strengths can become our greatest weaknesses when not used in God's grace acknowledging Him. A means of blessing can become our means of judgment. And so here we have pictured the very symbol of life now being turned into God's judgment upon God's people or of the Egyptians here. And that was going to be a sign too that God is working here and will continue to work. And we're going to see in these subsequent plagues how God begins to destroy the entire fabric of the worldview of Egypt's culture with all of their gods identified with each of those plagues. And now we're going to see the totality of God's sovereignty of it all And it is this great God, the great I Am, that personally appears to his people, to Moses first. And then when they're out in the wilderness, and they're dwelling now in tents, God says, I'm going to identify with your lot. I'm going to pitch my tent right among you. And he creates the tabernacle so that they can come to the great I Am. And they can find grace and mercy in their time of need. And that tabernacle today is Jesus. He's available to us all. And it is he that is pictured in all these object lessons that the fulfillment has come. And he's available to us this morning. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for revealing these beautiful truths to us in such a picturesque fashion. As we see these object lessons... We now see more clearly who Jesus is as our mediator, fulfilling the offices of prophet, priest, and king, the one and the only one that you chose, the one that you accredited and gave the authority to be that mediator, the one that that you empowered with your spirit to accomplish the very thing for which you have sent him, and he was perfectly faithful, he was triumphant, and today He is at your right hand, giving us the grace and the mercy we need in our time of help. Lord, we are a completely dependent people upon you, but we so little recognize it and so little trust you, evidenced by our prayer life, evidenced by the the apathy that we have for the means of grace. And Lord, forgive us for these things and show us your power. And show us Christ and change us into his glory in restoring the image of God for your glory upon this earth as you now, our Lord, reign and rule in the midst of your enemies through your church. Make this church, O Lord, successful in the work you've called her to and each of her members successful and empowered in the ministry they have here in this body. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.